Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for giving us a listen today. We really appreciate it. Before we get things going during the program, you may hear some banging or sawing or something. I've got destructors uh, downstairs for me, and every so often their machinery comes through, so I apologize for that, if you can even hear it. I can hear it in my headphones, but may not be able to pick it up. This is episode number 138 of The Next Track. This is our first episode of the new year. Happy New Year, Doug. Oh, yeah. Happy New Year. Right. Exactly. It's that time again, that random moment in the calendar where people decided to turn a page over and start a new year. I uh, I agree with you. I'm not a big celebrant of New Year's Day, although I did quote Bono to my wife. I said, all is quiet on New Year's Day. And that's because it's everything's closed and I have no particular obligations, but it's a good day to... You know, to look back at the past year. And, and in fact, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to talk about the year 2018, which is gone, but not forgotten. I'm getting tired of seeing end of the year lists. And this isn't really an end of the year list. This is really just an excuse for us to talk about how how the heck we find music to listen to these days. And I've got a couple of um, albums that I found in 2018. And I came across them, I think, in very interesting ways, non-traditional ways. You know, when we were buying records and listening to records we'd subscribe to music magazines we had uh, probably a network of a few record stores that we would go to and we'd know about new music and um you know you'd hear about an artist and you'd ask a buddy hey what do you know about these guys and they'd either say uh they're no good or they'd say oh they're good that's good you can get that that's good <laughs> so you you it was very difficult to to decide how we've talked about this before it was very difficult how to to spend your your album budget and you were very careful about what you listened to and it was often very difficult to find a lot of things so you were very restricted to what you could listen to now we've got apple music spotify streaming unlimited uh, resources to find music and too much too much and i i've i've actually tried not to do a lot of discovery i just kind of let things happen if i see something and it looks interesting i'll give it a listen and i like it and i can decide really fast unlike when i was growing up where it would take months sometimes for something to finally make it at at top of the mind so that when you saw it you could say oh that's an album i'm going to check out Uh, because everybody says it's great but now you don't need that you don't need that kind of feedback and and that's part of the problem not not only do they have i think they're talking about 50 million tracks in Apple Music and Spotify, but there is so much new music available that instead of there being 10 new albums in the genres that interest us in a week, there are literally hundreds if if your taste goes beyond an extremely narrow niche of music. And I find it so frustrating. I really don't look at new music. On, on Apple Music, I don't play the new music mix because what am I going to do? Listen for three hours to stuff that an algorithm thinks I might like and end up skipping through half of the tracks and not really enjoying them, but also not being in the mindset to want to enjoy them because of that feeling that they're dumping all this stuff, hoping that we're going to hoping that we're going to accept some of it. Yeah, that something is going to break through. And for me, an, uh, an album that broke through was the uh, Greta Van Fleet album from The Fires, which uh, in case you don't know who Greta Van Fleet is, they're the band that sounds like Led Zeppelin. And... I think they are pretty sincere about it. I, I'm sure there's an argument to be made that um, 
they are too derivative. But really, to me, what they sound like is they grew up on a desert island and the only music they had to listen to were Led Zeppelin albums. And to them, the only kind of music they know how to make sounds like Led Zeppelin. And you get that feeling. It doesn't sound contrived like Dread Zeppelin. I don't know if you remember that band. That's a band that used to lampoon Led Zeppelin songs uh, in, a, in a reggae sort of way. Uh, and they'd also combine Elvis songs, but that's a whole different topic. But Greta Van Fleet, I think, is reasonably sincere. And the way I heard about them is I heard their music being played as incidental music on the sports radio station. When they would come back... Incidental music on a sports radio station. Right. They would come back from a commercial break, and you'd hear the beginning of this Greta Van Fleet song. And I heard it so frequently, I said, what is that? It sounds like Led Zeppelin. But it wasn't. It was Greta Van Fleet, this band from Michigan. I, I like them. I, I don't think they're the next coming of Led Zeppelin, but what I like is that they do use a palette of Led Zeppelin to create songs. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, there are whole genres of, of music that borrow, you know, that stay within a genre. Why not stay within a, a, a group's over, as it were? Fair enough. If that's what floats your boat, if that's what furls your sail... If that's what weighs your anchor, if we can keep with the nautical metaphors. That's what swabs my deck. Very good. Well done. Thank you. I had to get I had to get one in. Interestingly, some of the music that I discovered this year came through a podcast called The Next Track. That's a good podcast. I know those dudes. They're buddies of mine. And we had some interesting guests this year, and there are a couple of them whose music I'm going to mention that's still in rotation. The first is Keelan Rose, who was on the show about three months ago. Her album, Awaken, it's her first record. She's a young woman in Manchester. The connection was that she's been involved musically with Vinnie Riley of Derudy Column. And someone got in touch with me, said, check out this record. And I said, this is really good. Let's get her on the show. And I added it to my Apple Music. And the way they work, you know, if you tell Siri, hey, Siri, play some music, it'll start playing your personal radio station. And so I do that sometimes in the car. And one or two of her tracks keep coming up in the radio station. Now, just as an aside, I realized that the Siri personal radio station thing plays about 40 or 50 songs and then starts over at the beginning. And I have a real problem with that because I listen to a lot of jazz. I listen to classical music. I listen to rock. So sometimes it'll go through a dozen jazz tracks. And I don't really feel like slow jazz when I'm driving in the car. So I skip, 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 skip. And then I get to the end and it starts over sometimes. I don't know how to shuffle that. I, I tried to figure it out myself. and I don't think there's any shuffle. If you just keep going, it seems to go, wait a minute, uh, I'll start a new list. And it kind of does, but you're right. I, I'm frustrated by the same thing. Well, I found that if you stop it, start playing something else, and then start it up again by asking Siri to play some music, it makes a whole new list. Like, it's a whole new genius list. Anyway, we're straying. Keelan Rose has this really attractive voice, really nice arrangements. I think she said the music was sort of folk psychedelic. This wasn't necessarily her definition. She said someone else had described it like that, and she felt that it fits. So Awakened by Keelan Rose, there'll be links to all our selections in the show notes, and we definitely think you should check some of them out. Go ahead. What about you? One of the problems, as I mentioned earlier, about trying to acquire music is that not only did you have to hear about it but then you had to actually locate it and you you know you'd hear about music but you were unable to find it in any of the bins now the story i have is hope this doesn't get too convoluted but most people will know that i'm a big fan of like british blues music i like humble pie and savoy brown and spooky tooth and fleetwood mac and eric clapton cream stuff like that and humble pie's founder steve marriott was originally in a band called small faces which evolved into the faces. 
Most people know Small Faces by the song Ichiku Park, which is like this psychedelic song that's very popular, still popular in the United States. And I didn't care much for that. I mean, I thought Steve Marriott was a white soul singer. I'm aware, where's the white soul? Then when I tried to find Small Faces albums with Steve Marriott on them, all I could find was something called Ogden's Nut Gone Flake, which was a, a concept album, mostly music hall-y kind of stuff. I thought, well, where's the white soul? I just couldn't find any Small Faces albums that had any of their early recordings on them. Well, now that, now that I have 50 million tracks at my disposal, I've been able to find these early rock and soul songs by Small Faces. They were really raved up. I mean, they were, they used to do these great songs. Sha La 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 Lee was a big hit. What You Gonna Do About It were big hits in the UK. Never happened in the United States. And finally, I found the source of, of, of early Steve Marriott, which was a, a treasure trove for me. So I, I've been listening to a lot of early small faces, finally realizing that, you know, that concept music hall stuff was just an anomaly. And it's no wonder that when they lost Steve Marriott and replaced him with Rod Stewart and Ron Wood on vocals and guitar and became the faces, that's why they got back into that rock and roll sort of sound rather than stay with the ronnie lane oriented music hall stuff but um I, that was a great find for me uh, getting all that old small faces stuff yeah that's one of the things about the streaming is we can discover music that we didn't discover when it came out right we can go back and search for things or we can find some recently remastered records and compilations and records of bonus tracks and you know, back in the day, I used to buy New Musical Express and Melody Maker at record stores in, in New York. And there would be a band I liked and there would be a single advertised and I wouldn't find it. And six months later, you'd forget about it. Maybe there would be a singles or B-sides album out a few years later. But in most cases, you would forget. And it is interesting now that some of that stuff bubbles up to the surface. It's not new, but hearing old tracks from a band you like the first time, decades later, has something really interesting to it. Oh, it's a thrill. I mean, it's it's one of the few times that I actually have that old, wow, this is really good feeling about music. A lot of new music I don't. A lot of the music I analyze it and say, well, this isn't quite one of the But when I, when I go back to a, a, an artist that I like and I hear something that I've never heard before, that is usually a much brighter moment than just plain listening to new music that I may or may not be interested in. Okay, so some other music that I discovered through a guest on the show. We had Theo Travis on earlier this year. Theo Travis plays flute, and I believe he also plays saxophone and some other wind instruments. And we heard about these apps that he released of music he recorded with Robert Fripp through Peter Chilvers, who's been a guest on the show twice and who's created apps with Brian Eno's music. And I knew of Theo Travis's name. He had played with a whole lot of bands and artists that I was very familiar with. But I wasn't familiar with this particular music. And so I went on the DGM Live website. That's King Crimson's website where they sell live tracks. And I downloaded three records called Between the Silence 1, 2, and 3 records, collections of music, live performances. These are the performances from which Peter Chilvers took the tracks that he kind of superimposes at random in the apps. And they were very interesting. But I went a little bit further. Robert Fripp, extraordinary guitarist. I've been a fan for more than 40 years. Back in the 70s, he started playing a form of looping that he called Frippertronics. And he does a different type of ambient music these days. And I went on the website and there were three collections of soundscapes, as he calls them, 
performed at the World Financial Center in New York in 2000. It was three performances. It reached about an hour and a half long. And it's really fascinating stuff. I did like the Frippertronics when it came out, even though there was something a bit mechanistic about it. It wasn't music that you would tap your foot to, but I liked the concept. Um, what he's doing now is really interesting. It's it's a kind of an ambient music without the obvious repetition that you get in Frippertronics. Your turn. I mentioned last week that I, I had rediscovered Steppenwolf, which I still feel embarrassed to say. Because when no, I was... No, I was so happy to hear... So when we record our next track picks at the end of the show, I do mine and Doug does his on his own later. So we don't get this kind of interaction that we could have. You know, he can talk to me about my pick, but I can't talk to him about his. I was so happy to hear that. I had their records when I was like 10 years old. That that to me is the music of my innocence. It was like that first taste of hard rock, but when you're still just a child, you know, the age that we were at the time. Yes, I absolutely agree. That's how it was for me as well. It's like the big kids. This is the music that the big kids liked. But I lost track with, of Steppenwolf. Somehow they just faded away. I don't know what happened. You know, the only thing left of them is Born to be Wild, and even that is is almost a parody of itself now. But every so often now, Steppenwolf is popping up in my in my Doug Adams radio, and I'm really bowled over. And it takes me a few minutes to realize that, oh, my goodness, this is Steppenwolf. Uh, what was one I heard yesterday that it, uh, for ladies only? I hadn't heard that song probably ever. And it was a really good rockin' little Actually, not a little song, big, long song. I've really been enjoying this. And like we were talking about a few minutes ago, it's it's amazing when you can go back and hear music that you missed. And for some reason, the Steppenwolf is grabbing me, unlike new music. And it's not because new music today is being made differently or something. I don't know what it is, but the there's a sensibility about the way the music is played by Steppenwolf. There's a nostalgia to the sound as well. Your childhood is coming through because of the... The, the familiar memories you had when you dipped an Oreo into a glass of milk and started <laughs> eating it and while you were listening to Steppenwolf. I suppose that could be it, but I, I was never a big Steppenwolf fan, and even later on, I, I like I said earlier, I was almost embarrassed to say that I liked Steppenwolf um, because I don't know what the impression people have of Steppenwolf. Maybe a motorcycle gang band or something. I don't know, but... Uh, so I thought that was it was it was interesting to, that I'm still interested now. I'm I'm much more curious in going back and hearing much more Steppenwolf, like I am with the Small Faces. Yeah, and and we can do that now. If you remember a few months ago, I was talking about Creedence Clearwater Revival that I hadn't heard in decades, and I went back and listened to some of their stuff on Apple Music, and I found it quite thrilling because again, this is stuff that belongs to the distant past. And all of a sudden, it was like new music, even though it was old music. Yeah, it's familiar, but it's still refreshing. So one other discovery I made this year isn't music, it's spoken word. Jeremy Irons did a four-disc recording of the poems of T.S. Eliot. He originally did this for the BBC Radio, and it was broadcast a few years ago. And while I don't really care for T.S. Eliot's cats and all that, his four quartets, the last four major poems he wrote, is to me one of the pillars of modern literature. It belongs next to Joyce's Ulysses. It belongs next to Shakespeare's Hamlet. And hearing Jeremy Irons read that was a revelation. The way he reads it, the the gravity he gives, the emotion he gives to it. I have several other recordings of these poems. Ralph Fiennes, T.S. Eliot himself, who reads it in a very... If you can imagine him reading his own poetry. April is the cruelest month. <laughs> you know, that 1930s voice, that sort of newsreel voice. But I really like this Jeremy Irons recording. And so here's what's interesting. I didn't know. 
but he did a reading of this about six or eight miles from my house. I was going to say six or seven blocks from your house, right? <laughs> Not quite that close. The first poem is called Burnt Norton. It's named after a house, which is a few miles from here. And he did a reading there last year in the spring. He later did one in London. And God, what I would have given to, to hear that. Anyway, it's not music, but to me, poetry can be music. Spoken word can be music. Audiobooks can be music. I've just been informed that our judges have declared that your choice of spoken word counts as a musical selection. <laughs> as I said, I, I like blues music, and I've always been aware of canned heat. And the thing about Canned Heat is it's never the same band. The band has evolved or had evolved for years such that at one point there was nobody in it that was in the original band. So they, it was became more of a tradition than anything. But um, one of the albums that I found last year was uh, Hooker and Heat, Canned Heat with John Lee Hooker. Uh, it's a double album that came out in the early 70s. I did not, I was not aware of it, and I should have been because it's really some awesome stuff. It's it starts off with just John Lee Hooker on him, with himself, accompanying himself. And you can hear his toe tapping, and you can hear him making up boogie as he's going along. And then, a little by little, the band kind of arrives at the studio, it, it appears. And, you know, you hear the you hear the producer in the booth saying, okay, we're going to roll it, boys, and things like that. You hear nice little studio uh, effects. And these guys just cook. I mean, I... I'm a big John Lee Hooker fan, and this is one of the best bands he's ever played with. And I was not aware of it, and it's one of my favorite things now. I just put it on, listen to it for about 90 minutes. It's Like I said, it's a double album, and it's just straight-ahead boogie that's played by experts. It's just delicious stuff. So I was very happy to find that. And it, it also led me to look at some more Canned Heat stuff. Um, they've been pretty consistent over the years, despite the fact that the personnel has always changed. But they've always had that nice root sound that I, I, don't, I don't think is that anybody can imitate, really. Another of my discoveries for this year isn't an actual discovery. It's a record label, one that I'd been familiar with for a long time, but one that just made so much music that I didn't really buy too many of their records. It's ECM Records. They're mainly known for their jazz, but they've also done a lot of modern classical music and some traditional music. They had been one of the labels that wouldn't stream their music for a long time, and early this year they came out and started streaming, and they were on Apple Music first and then on the other streaming services a week later. Uh, I'll link in the show notes to one of their playlists. They have a number of playlists that they curate, one is just general stuff. There's one that's new music. And there's something about the ECM record sound, which in some ways can be truly wonderful and in some ways can be terribly frustrating. There is this fine line between cerebral, mellow jazz and boring music. A lot of their records are really good, and a lot of them just fade into this like random noodling of three guys in a trio and... You don't know where it's going. And that's probably why I didn't buy a lot of their records. I mean, I, I bought the early records by the composer Arvo Pert when he started releasing music on ECM. I bought a number of Jan Garberich records. He plays often plays soprano saxophone. Uh, he's Norwegian, and he's done a lot of interesting things. I never really liked Keith Jarrett because he grunts when he plays. It's not like Glenn Gould, who kind of hums along. It's like it's almost a porcine grunt at times, and, and I just can't get past that. But it has been a pleasure going through these ECM playlists and records. And I, I look in the For You section of Apple Music. It tells me what's new. And it generally seems to recommend every single ECM record in, you know, the new releases or in the albums of the day. I'm looking today. Here's one 
by Jack DeJohnette Special Edition. Here's a... No, there's only one today. The Pat Metheny Bread Meldow is not on ECM. In any case, ECM has lots of interesting jazz and a fair amount of boring jazz, so you might find something you like. There you go. If you like boring jazz, you know where to go. Uh, (laughs) It's not uh, as bad as smooth jazz. There is a special circle of hell for smooth jazz performers. But, you know, uh, and not to defend smooth jazz because I don't care for it either, but there there is an audience for it, so... You know, there's no and there's no accounting for taste. So it's funny. You'll, some years ago, I wrote reviews for a website called Music Web, classical music reviews, and we also did some jazz reviews. And and the person who ran the site would send out lists of all the records that would be available, and we would choose what we wanted to review. And in many cases, he would request them, and others he would already have them. And no one requested this ECM jazz record by a piano trio. And he sent an email saying, well, the label or the PR people, whatever, they're asking why no one's interested. And I wrote back, because it's boring. I heard the first record. It was boring. I don't want to hear another one. One of the, um, one of the genres we talk about a lot, and which is one of the intersecting uh, pieces of the Venn diagram that Kirk and I listen to, is prog rock. And a lot of people think that like we're a, we're a, a prog rock podcast because we do tend to have guests and and discussions about prog rock a lot i, I think if you state honestly we do not think that prog rock is the, is is the next greatest thing to slice bread it just happens that it's something that we both have in common and we both enjoy and, and, and i think we also like it as because it's a, a genre that came and went and is trying to come back and we had roy avion who was the editor of, of the prog report and he was telling us about some new prog, progressive rock music that would be interesting to listen to. I always take what he said with a grain of salt because he said he liked Def Leppard, but only the progressive stuff, not the hits. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I, I don't know whether I should trust you or not, Roy. But um, he recommended a band called Thank You Scientist, and I took to them immediately. Uh, their album Stranger Heads Prevail. Uh, they're a, uh, if I can recall correctly, they have uh, strings and um woodwinds in the band uh the traditional prog rock setup bass guitar organ drums things like that they have a derivative sound too remember i was mentioning greta van fleet they have a derivative sound of led zeppelin but thank you scientist seems to have a derivative sound of like this pretty cool 70s prog rock and uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed listening to the album several times. I've, I've listened to uh, one or two of their other albums, but this one I like in particular. And every so often I'll hear something that goes, oh, that sounds like Genesis. Oh, that sounds like Yes. Oh, that sounds like Soft Machine. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting. And again, I'm not offended that they are, are using derivative um, themes and sounds because it's, it's creating a, a really good, thoughtful, well, well-played uh, arrangements. And I, I just really like it. Okay, another guest we had on the show who released an interesting record this year was Colin Curry. We had him on discussing his recording of Steve Reich's drumming, which is about a 75-minute piece for percussion instruments. Fascinating piece. But the record that I want to talk about is Pulse Quartet. It's two works. Quartet was something that Reich wrote in 2013. It's three movements, fast, slow, fast. That's what they're actually called. Pulse is a 14 and a half minute piece that he wrote that was sort of based on quartet, but slightly different. So they're sort of mirror images of each other. They, they bookend each other in some ways. It's a fascinatingly exciting recording. And it made me realize that Steve Reich is still turning out really good music. I know he just premiered something a month or so ago, which I haven't heard yet. But this is a wonderful recording. 
If I can find the website and if the videos are still available online, I'll link in the show notes to a series of recordings he did in Paris where he performed this and part of drumming and a number of other Steve Reich. There were three performances over three nights and he performed some of the newer works and some of the older works. I don't know if it's still online, but if they are, you'll see them in the show notes. If you don't know Steve Reich, he's one of my favorite composers. He's one of the two, let's call them classical minimalists with with Philip Glass, the two who really founded, the two who really brought minimalism out to the general public, because arguably Terry Riley was before that, and there were even others. But Steve Reich, to me, is a lot more interesting than Philip Glass. He hasn't composed anywhere near as much. He doesn't do film soundtracks, for example, like Philip Glass does. So every time there's a new Steve Reich album, I get kind of excited, and I like this one a lot. One of the albums I discovered this year was recorded by a British blues musician by the name of Lou Lewis. He had put out an album on Stiff Records in 1979 called Save the Whale. I think it's the only album he put out. He did put out a few singles, and then he kind of faded into into obscurity again. But um, I have to thank Apple Music again for just throwing this obscure artist into my, into my playlists. And I, I'm really amazed by it. Now, this is music I had never heard before. I'd never heard of Lou Lewis. And as I said, this came out in 1979 at a time when I was really paying attention to a lot of British music. Punk rock at the time was kind of maturing in 79, think about it. And then and pub rock was starting to develop. And so you have Lou Lewis doing this, you know, this sort of almost punk blues, I guess. But it, 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 that, that's not an accurate description. But it, it has a very rough-edged blues sound, especially for British blues music. And so I was really amazed that... He made this one record. I think I read that he makes an appearance on The Clash's Sandinista album, playing blues harp, I imagine. Um, it's it's quite an interesting little artifact and an obscure album. But again, something I, I'm very surprised I had never heard of and I found via streaming. Okay, my last pick is a six-CD set of Brian Eno's Music for Installations. I had been familiar with some of this music. One of the pieces had been released on its own called E Dormienti. There are some other pieces that sound like other pieces. In other words, bits where he had taken part of one piece and he had expanded it more. And there was also the music for 77 Million Paintings, which is a, a CD-ROM that he developed some years ago that permutated visuals on the screen with 77 million possibilities. And there was a soundtrack behind it. Getting all this music together, all of this truly ambient music meant to be a background for installations was really fascinating. It's, you know, six hours of Brian Eno music that you're not familiar with is really quite an event. The music goes back quite a way. It, you know, it covers several decades and some of it is even, I think it's called music for future installations. So it's bits he's composed that he hasn't used yet. Most or all of this is generative music, which means that he basically creates an algorithm and presses the button and it goes on until he stops it. So it's, it, it would be impossible then to have a collection of all the music that he's ever created because it generates. And in order to have it, you would have to have infinite drive space because... No, no, you don't. You just need to have the program. So, so we had Peter Chilvers on talking about the Reflection app which is about 100 megabytes or 140 megabytes on iOS. And you could let that run for days, weeks, months, years, you know, until the clock of the long now runs out. <laughs> no, but what I meant was you couldn't get a recording of the music as it was generated at the installations because that's all gone. It was all... Oh, no, 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 of course yeah, not. Right. No, of course not. But the, the point of generative music is that if he could make an app 
for each one of these, a program, an algorithm, you could have unlimited music for each one of these pieces, moods, works, however you want to describe it. Interestingly, when Reflection came out, he did release a CD. He took a 60-minute bit, and he said, this is indicative of the work, and he released it on CD. It's almost like a, yeah, it's a <laughs> sample, essentially, right? You say indicative of the work, but here's a sample of what the machine sounds like when I push the go button. Well, actually, in addition to the official CD, he made 500 individual CDs, each one different, that he sold through Rough Trades Records in a signed edition, of which, fortunately, I was able to buy one, and no two of them are the same. Oh, that's pretty cool. And this has been pretty cool, a look back at our music discoveries of 2018, and hopefully 2019 will be another year of great musical discoveries. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.